business as usual, some things never change. It's unfair and unkind and unjust and it's strange. We don't seem to learn, we can't seem to stop. I suppose some explosions might close up the shop and you know, maybe that would be fine because we would be off the hook, man. We resolved all the problems, never mind what it took, man. And it all would be over for Nito the end. Until the survivors started up all over again in a Well, good evening. It's every under, other Sunday again, and I want to welcome all of your listeners to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly program focused on environment and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz, and today I have a really exciting show. I have people from members of Extinction Rebellion from Monterey and Santa Cruz. Uh, I'm going to name them Magali Morales, Vanessa McCarsky, Dwight Marshall, and Jennifer Bergman all of whom have come to the station to tell us about Extinction uh, Rebellion and try and answer some of the questions that you may have and, and recommend some of the things you might do with respect to climate change. Uh, Extinction Rebellion defines itself as a nonviolent rebellion against the U.S. government for its criminal inaction on the ecological crisis with the goal of compelling government action to avoid tipping points in the climate system, biodiversity loss, and the risk of social and ecological collapse. So I want to welcome you all to Sustainability Now. We have a crowded studio, and so um, we're going to try and share airtime, have a conversation, rather than a, any kind of interrogation. Uh, so what, let's begin. Um, as background for our listeners, can one of you, or all of you, or some of you, talk, talk about the crisis that we're facing? I can go for it. <laughs> and, and tell my, tell people your name. Sure. My name is Magali Morales. So um, our Earth has systems to keep its climate steady and supportive of life. And it's done that for millions, you know, for, for a very long time, for millions of years. And, um, and because of the way humans use fossil fuels and the amount of um, carbon that we have spewed into the atmosphere, those systems are... Um, at risk now um and so you know even though i mean there's been a, an ecological crisis building for a long time we know we have polluted the earth you know the, the soil and we polluted the water and we polluted the air and we've done you know our way of living and our way of producing things is um it's very destructive but now the crisis what we call the climate crisis is coming because of all of these systems that keep the weather you know the climate and the plant on the planet steady unraveling and one of the reasons that's happening is because of what we call tipping points which you mentioned and what this is is um there are processes that um that once they get going they're very hard to stop for example you know when the ice in in the poles melts um, it needs to you know, well ideally it would rebuild again the following year but the warmer the air the um the more it melts and the harder it is to 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 rebuild that and when 
I'll, I'll go with you soon, Jen. And when, um, you know, the, the white surfaces of the ice caps on the Earth reflect heat away from the planet, but when they are not there, the dark waters of the ocean capture more heat. So there are actually, there are several of these um, negative feedback loops and um, processes that are actually exacerbating each other. Also wildfires, you know, the more heat there is, the drier the atmosphere, the drier the atmosphere, the more wildfires and the more devastating the wildfires and the more wildfires, the more carbon goes into the atmosphere and that heats up the planet even more. These are just a couple of examples. Sure. So what I was going to talk about is that sometimes when we talk about these systems of the planet, we sort of forget about the fact that we live here. Like this is our environment. We need this air. We need this planet to survive. And when we sometimes, you know, when we get we start talking about the science behind it, we sort of it's a great way to divorce ourselves from the reality. Um, personally, I've I've been in a catastrophic flood. I've had to evacuate my living situation at two o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. Um, you know, and these are things that while we talk about this science, we can't forget that this is going to affect us personally. <laughs> this is going to affect where we live. This will affect our food supplies. Um, you'll see that you're seeing this in Australia right now. People are evacuating their homes. They don't have places to live. Their food is unstable. This is what is going to happen unless we address these these systematic failures and unless we start making very extreme changes very quickly, um, we will cross these tipping points and all of this, you know, the mass extinction is going to start affecting us. And it, it is, in fact, starting to affect us, including things like the insect apocalypse and, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and all of that. So what is Extinction Rebellion? I mean, how is it responding to this? Anybody uh, else want to how, how about you, Dwight? Why don't mm -hmm. you take that one? Well, Extinction Rebellion uh, was formed uh, in the spring of uh, 2017 in England, and uh, basically the idea is to try to get a minimum of three and a half percent of the populace to march in the streets all over the world, hopefully, uh, in the capitals to try to persuade government that business as usual is just not going to work anymore and uh, force government to come to the table, to, to talk to civilians uh, about climate change, to tell the populace that the situation is dire, tell the truth about it. The situation is actually much more dire than most people are aware of. Uh, civilization as we know it is at risk. So uh, it's much more than uh, people uh, only flushing their toilet once a day or not using uh, uh, enough water to have a lawn. It's gone beyond that. We need massive civil disobedience. Our, our, we believe that uh, our civilization could collapse. We now have 415 parts per million of carbon in our atmosphere. Scientists tell us, and we believe the scientists, that 350 parts per million is, in fact, the, the highest we can go to keep really a livable planet. We're way beyond that now, and even if we stopped using all fossil fuels tomorrow, the effect uh, of using these fossil fuels for the last 100 years is going to remain 
with us for another several hundred years. So uh, we believe the time has come to act and not, we can't wait anymore for government to do the right thing because it doesn't look like that's going to happen. I was uh, doing some reading up on XR the uh, the other day in prep for the show, and and I wonder can you can you say something about its demands because there are some specific demands. Maybe Vanessa, you could address that. Yeah, hello, I'm Vanessa Makarski from Monterey. Um, Extinction Rebellion has in the United States because all Extinction Rebellion chapters, all Extinction Rebellion nations are essentially autonomous units. So. In the UK, Extinction Rebellion was founded by a bunch of very talented and, and foresighted people. And that idea was then brought over to the US and was modified to meet our needs and and to adjust to what we find most compelling and important given our social situation in the country. So the three, for, we have four demands in the US, four basic demands, which of course have much more than basic implications are huge, right? And those three that we share in common, I believe, with the UK, where XR originated, and with most other, I would say, all XR chapters in the world, the United States has added a fourth demand, which is very interesting and crucial, which we'll talk about. So the three demands are basically, one, that government tell the truth about climate change and the ecological emergency that we're facing. Now, this demand can be expressed as we demand the government tell the truth and use media, use all media avenues available to to tell the people what's going on. This happens, um, for example, when there's a fire, when there's a flood, you have emergency broadcasting, right? And there's there's you know it's like there's there's a problem, people are in danger, and so we're going to use every avenue that we can to make sure that people know that and can stay safe. Now. Since this is an ongoing situation that endangers everyone, while well, we would expect that the government actually take that seriously and actually explain to all of us what is going on so that even if we're using a democratic process, people are informed and can, and can vote, for example, um, with their own safety in mind. This first demand also could be expressed as declaring a climate emergency because if we were to tell... if the truth were to be told, it would be expressed as an emergency. The second demand is that governments reduce their net carbon output to zero by 2025, which is really soon, right? We're already into 2020. People say, ah, well, that's, that's impossible. You can't transition that quickly. But what is possible and what is impossible? You know, it was thought that landing a man on the moon was probably something that is impossible, and yet that is an example of a project which government got behind in a unified way and said, no, we're going to make this happen. Also, it cited the transition of, of the economy, the industrial economy, um, during World War II. In a very short period of time, the entire industrial system was turned into a war machine, right? So that's something the government is good at, right? And in a situation they're good at amassing resources in an appropriate way to deal with an emergent situation. Um, the third demand can be a little bit um, esoteric, you could say, uh, difficult to imagine, and that is that we want that, that Extinction Rebellion believes that in order to avert sort of um, I don't want to say fascist takeover, right? But uh, 
about authoritarian you know, government? Well, in order to avert sort of an authoritarian approach and then the reactionary movement that comes from that, the idea is to create a people's people's assemblies, which, you know, so here's here would be the ideal situation. The government tells the truth, right? The government really uses all its means to communicate the science and the predictions from basically all of the academic disciplines that say, hey, listen, we need to change our entire system, otherwise it's going to collapse. So then once the people hear all of this, right, there would be this creation of people's assemblies, which are basically um, small units, small uh, governmental units, but comprised not of elected officials, but of citizens, which are chosen by random selection, much like a jury is chosen. And um, and this is kind of a, a a check and balance thing, so that it's not like ah look the government is making all these rules and making all these decisions for us. They're telling us we can't do this, we can't do that. It's like no, actually this was done by a citizens assembly. People like you and I got together and and decided what makes sense. Um, the fourth demand is a big demand, and I've been talking for a long time. Does anybody else want to speak a little about about our, our United States fourth demand? Sure, I can. And um, I am one of the representatives for the for the fourth demand in Extinction Rebellion Santa Cruz. So the fourth demand, um, which I, I think all the XR chapters should have, but was really adopted by the United States, um, has to do with social justice. It has to do with creating a just transition and that, res- that respects um, and um, ecosystems and allows them to thrive in perpetuity that respects and supports indigenous uh, sovereignty that redresses the ills of colonization and slavery and um, and provides a pathway for people of color and people who have been oppressed and people who have lived in poverty to actually you know yeah have justice in, in their lives and um and so, and and that actually um, corrects for imbalances of power. So this is a big mouthful, um, but the the whole point of this is really recognizing, first of all, that the countries and people who have created most of the carbon emissions are the wealthiest ones, and the people and countries who stand to suffer the worst of the climate crisis are the poorest ones who have created the least of the emissions. There are some very, very clear projections of this. You know, some of the poorer countries um, stand to have, you know, the, the, the greatest climate stabilization and destabilization and the greatest and suffer the greatest hunger levels. And um, and this actually also translates to to communities of color and poor communities in, you know, in rich countries as well. You know, it's always in the poorest people who um, end up living in places that are more contaminated, um, for example. And then there's the whole issue of, you know, the fact that this country was, um, oh, yeah. Go ahead, Go ahead. Finish. Go ahead no, finish. that that this country was founded, you know, on genocide and slavery, and there are many there there are many injustices still at play that need to be addressed. You're listening to KSQD in Santa Cruz at ninety point seven FM and KSQD.org on the internet. Tune in to KSQD tomorrow evening, Monday, at 6 for Climate One, which is very germane to our topic today. Uh, it's a show produced by the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Uh, it's a, and it's a forum for candid discussion among climate scientists, policymakers, 
activists and concerned citizens, I hope they're listening to this, with a focus on energy, the economy, and the environment. Climate One airs Monday evenings at 6 p.m. right after Talk of the Bay here on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. And this evening, I have a group of activists from Extinction Rebellion in Monterey and Santa Cruz, uh, Vanessa McCarsky and Dwight Marshall from Monterey, and Magali Morales and Jennifer Brugman from Santa Cruz. Uh, And we've just been talking about the the climate crisis and uh, Extinction Rebellion's positions and demands. Uh, one of the things we talked about a little bit earlier, which which was really interesting, was was how you guys, guys, sorry, how the four of you got involved in this movement. Um, you know, what brought you to this particular point? And uh, I would l- actually like to hear about this because I think these are common experiences that of of many many people, uh, not just in Santa Cruz and Monterey, but around the world. Uh, and and individuals often don't you know they don't know that other people are going through the same kind of of existential crises, and so maybe um, maybe Vanessa you could start you know you don't have to uh, speak at length but just a little bit about how you 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 know ended up in an XR. Sure. Well, um, it's uh, it seems that we're at a point at which it's it's a pretty poor option to not do everything that you can. (laughs) Um, What's another way to say that? Um, I have always spent a lot of time. uh, I've always given myself in my schedule, a lot of open time to not be listening to anything, to not be doing anything, to just really have time to think and to consider everything and anything that comes up. And, um, when you when you watch what's going on in the world right when you when you have the experience of being in catastrophic conditions fires floods tropical storms uh when you hear about people that you know or you just hear about millions of people who are suffering because of this when you we we in Monterey we live right next to Hopkins Marine which is Stanford's marine research station and every day you have scientists coming in off of boats with these really grim looks on their faces because all of the marine studies all over the world are are very sobering and and upsetting and tragic you know the oceans you know one of the of course it's not just we on the land who are affected by by the gaseous atmospheres change composition right the oceans are sucking in the heat the energy the extra energy and heat in the form of heat uh, and also the carbon which is you know we know this is known science now is acidifying and basically the food chains in the ocean are collapsing um now how did i get involved so um i have spare time right that's what I, I choose to not have that much money. I don't have kids, but what I got is time. So I think about stuff and I thought, oh crap, it's time to do something. It's time to do anything. And so when I heard, you know, somebody said Extinction Rebellion, I said, what's that? They said, oh, well, you know, Noam Chomsky says, do it. Vandana Shiva says, do it. It's been mentioned in the Times. It's all over the world. I said, great, sounds good. Let's do it right now. You know, let's do something. Go ahead, Jennifer. Um, sure. So uh, about a year ago during the campfires, um, is when I really, you you know, you, you hear all these catastrophic predictions on the news 
And I have to say that I felt incredibly helpless. I hope I, I felt helpless. I felt angry. Um, I have asthma and during the campfires, I couldn't really go outside. Um, I love to sort of exercise outside. I ride my bike all the time, but um, as an asthmatic, when there's that kind of level of pollution in the air, you can't go outside or it could kill you. In fact, the worst asthma attack I ever had was one time I accidentally rode my bike during a fire and I almost went to the hospital. Um, and then it, it sort of struck me that this is the world that we are creating. You know, we're creating a world where we can't go outside, where we can't enjoy nature. And I, the rage that I felt, the helplessness that I felt, it really felt like my soul was, and I've said this before, but it felt like my soul was going through a meat grinder. Like I just, I couldn't, I couldn't make it stop. Like I, the depression, the, the anger, the, I, there was nothing that made me feel better. Going outside made me feel guilty that as a human being, I'm part of this process that is destroying this planet. So I shouldn't be allowed to enjoy that because again, my, by my very existence, I am contributing to death, to the death of this planet that I love. Um, and then I started with Extinction Rebellion and I finally felt like I was doing something. And that, that feeling where, where every part of me was being destroyed went away. You know, I felt like, okay, now I can, I'm contributing. Now I'm part of something that will help. I'm part of something that will help fix this situation. And that, that feeling of helplessness started to go away. Um, so that's, and I saw a Facebook post and, you know, was like, maybe this is the thing. And it was, it was the thing that got me through this. So. How about you, Dwight? Uh, we, we talked about this earlier, and, and uh, I heard myself talking. So, not, I, wasn't list, I wasn't talking, but, but Dwight's story. So, go ahead. Well, um, uh, when I was a young man, uh, I was faced with uh, going to Vietnam, basically, or going to jail. And it seemed very clear to me at the time that our government was making some extremely poor decisions. So um, eventually I, I did spend some time behind bars rather than go to Vietnam. Uh, I, it seemed to me for a long time, and I am just a regular person, really. I, there's nothing special about me. I'm a retired social worker, and I've always had a, a love of, of nature, but I believe many people do have that love. But it just became very obvious to me that our government, again, was making some extremely poor decisions in, in believing that the basic role of government was just to grow the economy. If you just grow the economy, then essentially everything will be fine. Well, I think we're learning that uh, that's not true, that uh, government, government has more responsibilities Government has a responsibility to its people to keep them healthy. And uh, our government is clearly not doing that. And we're not the only government that's not doing that. But we have uh, probably uh, been responsible for more carbon in the atmosphere than perhaps any other single nation. And we have a responsibility to the world to the creatures, all the creatures that live in it, to to act. And uh, so when I saw that uh, Extinction Rebellion was uh, starting a chapter in Monterey County, I felt like this was my 
opportunity to attempt to do something, even if it's very late in the game. And and so I feel like I am, I feel like when I come to die, I can at least say to myself, I made an attempt to, to change our trajectory. And um, I'm, I'm glad for that. It's, it's good to hear all of your stories. Um, I, I'm from Mexico and I grew up in Mexico City. And when I was about 13, um, half of the birds in Chapultepec Park dropped dead one day because of our air pollution. The air pollution in Mexico City was so intense that it didn't support life already you know um so i um, my uh, my environmental awakening happened in stages when i moved to the united states 20 years ago i was living in an eco village and i met a lot of really um committed activists who were uh, trying to save the forest from logging in oregon and um, and you know whenever i would travel to mexico to visit my family i would look out the window of the airplane and there was nothing but clear cuts you know and these little tiny kind of manicured little bits of trees next to the road just to you know to fake it like there's still a forest so my my environmental conscience was born in those stages but definitely it, it was very eye-opening to live among the defenders of the forest 20 years ago and then um the way i got involved with i mean i've known this crisis was coming i didn't know it was going to be a climate crisis i just knew that we were destroying the world and i wanted to do something about it and i i knew that the level of change needed was going to be so great that i i couldn't even imagine the vehicle that would take us from extractive industrial capitalism to something else that doesn't, you know, it destroy our land base. So, um, about a year ago, I, the other thing is that I um, I thought I was never going to have children because the, I was so worried about the state of the world. And yet, three years ago, three and a half years ago, I became a mother to a young child, and I am. Um, you know, I'm now raising somebody whose future looks to be foreshortened by this crisis. And um, so I started writing a blog about parenting in the age of climate change because I knew a lot of parents of young kids who, you know, they were just trying to protect their kids and do the daily tasks that are so absorbing and exhausting. And they couldn't really afford to look at their kids' future emotionally. They just couldn't handle that. And I felt like I was, I was already in a really strong position to do both, you know. So I began my blog and another uh, mom in Santa Cruz reached out to me and um, and she was involved in the early days of Extinction Rebellion in Santa Cruz. So I joined her efforts and, um, you know, that was before the climate strike last year. And I am putting my all my bets on this effort. Um, I have seen it spread quickly around the world and involve people in many different countries and cultures. And, you know, and there's already, I mean, this movement is not new. The environmentalist movement is, is not new at all. We are just adding our efforts and coordinating something that is very, very vast um, and that many people want. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that I hear, um, Jennifer, you mentioned you mentioned that that a focus on the science in many ways is a is a process of distancing, right? I mean, I I think you you, you mentioned it. Um, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I mean, I think we can use it to protect ourselves, but I also think that we need to face the science. You know, I I think it's a balancing act, personally. Well, but, yeah, mm -hmm. but but um, what I what I hear 
uh, you know, is, is very, is, is emotional commitments, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to sort of abstract action, right? And I think this is, this is in many ways, uh, we, we in this country, we tend to try and, well, I certainly do, you know, try and, and, and wall ourselves off, right? And the, the emotional commitment is, is, and that's the other thing, is that we're also sort of inclined to think about uh, ourselves individually, right, as isolated individuals. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that you're doing, uh, and that's really necessary, is building those emotional bridges, right, rather than saying, oh, you know, horror, this is what's coming. You know, what, can, what, what does it mean to us together and what can we do together? Um, I'm going to take a break, okay, and we'll come back and, and talk some more. Uh, you're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz and ksqd.org on the internet, uh, and this is Sustainability Now. Hello, this is Ralph Nader, and you are listening to KSQD, Santa Cruz's brand new community radio station. Buddhism, Judaism, Baha'i, Islam, Christianity, Hinduism. Sound interesting? Faith Matters is a unique bi-monthly program that explores spirituality, life, and meaning with local religious leaders. We discuss areas of common ground and also identify distinct differences among diverse spiritual perspectives. Join us on the second and fourth Sunday evening of every month from 6 to 7 as we have thought-provoking conversations about Faith Matters on 90.7 KSQD. Hi, you're listening to Sustainability Now on KSQD 90.7 FM. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, your host. And tonight in the studio, I have four members of Extinction Rebellion, Magali Morales, uh, Vanessa McCarsky, Dwight Marshall, and Jen Brugman. Um, and we've just been talking about how they got uh, connected up to Extinction, Extinction Rebellion. Um, I want to I sort of shift a little bit uh, to this question of, of non-violent civil disobedience, because this is one of the principles of Extinction Rebellion, right? Using non-violent civil disobedience to pressure governments to change and to, to respond to the demands. And I'm sort of, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about, about the theory behind that and the practice of, of that kind of civil disobedience? Sure. So I'm one of the people who helps coordinate actions in Santa Cruz. Um, And the logic behind it is, you know, if you look at what we've been doing for the past 30 years, which is engaging in the system that we already have, contacting our representative, representative officials, signing petitions, things like that, it hasn't worked. You know, we we aren't getting anywhere. You know, this climate crisis keeps escalating and escalating and no one's really done anything to stop it. Um, So that's. Then if you look at other ways in which, you know, the world has changed, you know, you look at at violent actions. And if you look at the statistics behind them, in fact, there was actually a video that I just saw earlier today. Um, It has a 23 violent actions to say overthrow or to to challenge a government or have a 23 percent success rate with the added bonus of 95 percent chance of authoritarianism happening after that. Um, But if you look at, for example, the successful movements, if you look at uh, workers' rights, women's rights, these were all nonviolent direct actions. You know, they all put pressure on the government by these civil disobedient acts. And, you know, 
it's it's funny because I have never engaged in any kind of nonviolent direct action before I started with XR. And, you know, the things that, that we do, you know, even something as small as spending too much time in an intersection to sort of make traffic go a little bit slower um, can really have a very profound impact on somebody's day, can really have a very profound impact on that location and, and to, to have a profound impact on spreading the word. Now, if you magnify that by 3.5% of the population getting out into the streets, causing disruption and not engaging in the rules of society, you know, again, without hurting anybody, that is when governments change because that is enough of a population change. That is enough of a disruption to business as usual where they have to change. It's too much of a disruption for them. Operations cannot continue. And so once we get to that number and we have, you know, continued to put pressure on the government, continued to do, you know, not business as usual, things will change. This will change. Well, I'm going to challenge you here. Okay. All right. With, with examples. I mean, I, the fact is that civil disobedience has been used repeatedly in this country for at least 40 years, going back to the anti-nuclear movements of the 1970s. So that's almost 50 years. And of course, we can go, we can go farther back. Um, and although there, there have been periodic impacts, the system hasn't changed. And, and so I wonder about, about that, right? If you're looking for real systemic transformation, right? The this, this switch, a, a government turning around from its deep commitment to the current power relations to something which is more fair, more just, more attentive to the earth. You know, I mean, this is, this is really, we're really talking here about something quite, quite significant and radical. And I use radical here in not in a pejorative sense, but in a, thoroughly positive sense, right? When and where has civil disobedience been able to do that? I have one thing to say um, about that, and then I will we'll hand it over to Magali. Um, were we facing an apocalypse at any point in time? Because that's well, what we're talking about right now. I think we Dwight are... and I would agree that, you know, nuclear anni annihilation, which could come at any moment, right? Which you don't get 30 years warning or whatever it is. It can come at that. That's pretty sure. apocalyptic. And by and large, of course, we sort of ignored it. Right. right? And, and but, how, how many people were making money off of that? How many trillions well, of dollars? You know, you know, the oil industry is making how many trillions of dollars off of well, this okay. so, particular yeah, right. apocalypse? So, so, I mean, that's right. So, so there's mm -hmm. deeply embedded interests right. which are obstructing any kind of, of change. No, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I teach this stuff, so I'm fully aware about sure. that. But, I'm, but I want to kind of challenge you on this, you know, on this proposition because I think it's, it's a useful thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. I love this question. And one of the things I think about is of us as not really separate from these other movements. You know, the things that the civil rights movement wanted, the things that um, the Occupy movement wanted, the things that shut down the WTO in 1999, we want those same things. This is no different. It's true that the, you know, the system is so entrenched. And, and, and I actually always look back to just the age of colonization, you know, how... After 1492, a handful of European countries just like divided the world like an apple and ate it up. And the processes that began at that time are still in place. You know, our countries are deeply divided by race. You know, race and class have like these 
tremendous intersections. Um, there, um, you know, extractive capitalism is like a sickness that has so many people by the throat. And even those of us who would like to say consume nothing, we can't do it. We're trapped here. You know, we drove a car with gasoline to get here. I mean, this is so um, clear. But I think what's happening now is that we are we we're able to coordinate on a much, much greater scale and see our commonalities and also understand that social justice is climate justice. Mm -hmm. And there will be no climate justice without, you know, a different way to be. And this, you know, this is why I am so grateful that Extinction Rebellion U.S. added the fourth demand. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the flaws and one of the problems in Britain, that Britain is one of the countries that like broke the world and it hasn't come to terms with it yet. I mean, even now, like the, the political climate that is lived in the United States, you know, I mean, Toni Morrison famously said that the reason that this uh, president won the election in 2016 is because white Americans don't want to give up their privilege. <laughs> so we have some really systemic, deep problems that have been around for a long time. And it's true. They haven't been solved. But now we see the connection between all of them. I think, you know, I, I, <laughs> general strike. Okay. I mean, and, and interestingly, if you look at France, you know, the, the French have got the general strike, not quite down to an art because they, you know, they don't quite pull it off. But, but that's a very centralized country as well, which we are not. Americans just love working too much. We just can't do a general strike. That's probably right. But, you know, the San Francisco general strike, when was it, in 39? I mean, or earlier, labor strike shut down the West Coast or big chunks of the West Coast. And um, anyway, yeah, Dwight, and then, uh, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to throw this in. To be blunt, in regards to civil disobedience, what choice do we have? What choice do we really have? We... I'm not, allowed, up, I'm not allowed to say that on, uh, on the radio. <laughs> I'll bet. Uh, we're up against perhaps, not even perhaps, the most powerful government the world has ever known. Armed <laughs> to the teeth, it's a cliche, but armed uh, incredibly. And so we have no chance to mount any kind of a violent revolution. That is, in my opinion, that is bound to to lose dare dare i point dare i point to iraq uh where where martyrdom seems to be a daily occurrence the government there is incredibly stupid they just keep shooting people i'm, I'm not again i'm not invoking that as a model but you you know the audience can sort of extrapolate I don't, anyway well, I, I would still say that we have no choice but to participate in civil disobedience and uh, i i do believe that it's a tactic that eventually uh is superior to to any other tactic that that we're aware aware of and it's also it's a fairly new form of protest in the world and i i believe that it still has the chance to evolve into a more powerful uh force uh than we than we can know so we we have to work at it. It's it is a work in progress. Uh, mind you, I'm not putting it down. I, I'm certainly not a critic of it, right? But but I look at 
the ex the experience of movements. I, I earlier I talked about Ukraine, where they've had several color revolutions and successive presidents, and that's one of the reasons I think we're we're seeing an impeachment of Donald J. Trump, uh, in part. So, but but they they mobilize in the in the you know square in Ukraine. The the president flees to Russia or someplace else. They get a new one, and you know everything is the same. And so, again, in our last quarter hour, I want to talk strategy, okay? So I'm just, you know, right now I'm sort of setting things up. Um, and, uh, you know, and I know, I know, I mean, I've read the work of Gene Sharp. I've been aware of, of his work on, on uh, nonviolent disobedience for a long, long time. Um, but you're, really, there's this question, right, of, okay, it looks, it looks good, you do it, and then what? It's that then what part that seems to me. I, Occupy, which was really in the headlines for quite a long time, you know, flamed across the sky. And when was the last time you've heard about Occupy? Yeah. Um, um, Tell I, me I'm wrong because I want to be wrong. <laughs> what I what I want to say is that um, that that. <laughs> For example, well, I want to get us back to the four demands of Extinction Rebellion. Actually, that's what I want to do, and um, and already Extinction Rebellion um, has changed the conversation about the climate crisis worldwide in a short amount of time. Um, there are a few things that are a little different about our movement than previous movements. One is that we really embrace grief and the grieving process of like knowing that our world is in like such profound trouble. Another one is that we practice a regenerative culture where we really try to take care of each other. We we know that this is a long-term process, you know, mm -hmm. that we need to be in. And so we are trying to not just burn out as activists in, in the short term. And we, we are building something big and hopefully long. Mm -hmm. We're also about building community. Yeah. You know, it's a matter yeah. of, uh, you know, getting involved in each other's lives, supporting each other. And there is talk right now that we are building, we are working at building long term. Um, I, I forget the word, like, um, you know, not boundaries, but long-term solutions, long-term building blocks. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. Building blocks that will sustain us, that will sustain people, that will sustain this movement over time. Um, because, again, it's one of those things where if it's just about reaching these goals and that's all you do, you're going to burn out and the movement's going to burn out. Mm -hmm. so. Um, and so, th thank you so much. And the other thing that I want to say, so we want the government and the media to tell the truth about the climate crisis. We want everyone to commit to going carbon neutral by 2025. And the way we do that, this is where the third demand is so important, is through citizens assembly, no, the third, citizens assemblies. And um, there's a fabulous Extinction Rebellion video about an Irish woman talking about citizens assemblies and how the referendum about abortion worked in Ireland, which is something that, you mm. know, Irish women have been fighting for the right to get divorced, for the right to safe abortion for many, many decades. And it was so interesting how it all happened relatively quickly and relatively, you know, efficiently. So I agree with you, Dwight. I don't think we've seen like all the aspects um, of this, of this, um, these tools. I don't think we've seen all that they are capable of yet. And, you know, we sure, the thing that people call democracy is not democracy. So 
we are really experimenting with other ways of you know working together and really involving the will of the people. I mean, this is the we live in a very obvious corporatocracy and like you know welfare corporate welfare state in there are many mechanisms that are supposed to be working for us that really aren't and they're totally broken so um this is not just you know i don't know i don't think this is gonna um this is gonna die out easily we're we're building on what we've learned for generations and also um the situation is so dire and it's gonna i mean you know half of this town is going to be underwater if the ocean rises according to you know if if we stay where we're going it's going to be so ugly there's you know projections about you know what would the world do with 700 million refugees for example Uh you're you're listening to ksqd at 90.7 fm in santa cruz and ksqd.org on the internet this is sustainability now i'm your host ronnie lipschitz and tonight in the studio we have four members of Extinction Rebellion from Monterey and Santa Cruz, uh, Magali Morales, Vanessa Makarski, Dwight Marshall, and Jennifer Bergman. Um, and we've just been talking about the uh, the effectiveness of, of civil disobedience, as well as I think the issue of, uh, the, of community building. You know, that civil disobedience by itself uh, is not going to accomplish something without perhaps building much more uh, I don't know, tightly bound communities. Uh, the, the affinity groups of the 1980s, of, of uh, Greenham Common and of the 1980s, I think, were that kind of formation. And, you know, we haven't heard about them for a long time. But, um, Vanessa, you wanted to say something about this. and so Yeah. Um, talking about strategy and talking about community okay, building, yeah. I've always said that no matter what happens, no matter how successful or unsuccessful this movement is, just the fact that we have people coming together and cooperating nonviolently with one another and really, really trying to make a safe place for one another and a place where we're all heard and where we're all um, taken care of in some sense, like Magali was talking about with regenerative culture, um, is going to be important because times are hard for a lot of people. All throughout history, times are hard for a lot of people right now, and and they will become harder for all of us as time goes on. That's what uh, that's what all the forecasts say. And so, it's important to build community. It's important to build intentional community with with common ethical goals in mind to care for one another and for all living beings. Because, like we said. Social justice and climate justice have become really one thing like, surprise, we've discovered justice is justice. <laughs> and and, um, and about civil disobedience, uh, there's also a question one of our subcomandantes says, he's like, look, there's no way to vote for public transportation. There's no way to vote for a war-free state. There are so many, you know... There are things that you really can't get done, it seems, through process very easily. And there there has to be some more direct way. And if somebody could think of a better one, that would be really great. And we could have a separate show for call-ins of other ideas how to get this stuff done. Well, then, I recommend Murray Bookchin, actually, you know, and, and his writings about, about anarchist communities. Um, although, again, you know, the, the technicalities are a little bit problematic. Um Listen, I want to talk. To spend the last fifteen, well, ten minutes or so to to talk about about broader strategy. 
Um, but also, I, I when I was doing the, um, you know, doing the reading, I read, I ran on. T uh, sorry, I'm having a senior moment here. I ran into this discussion by Roger Hallam, one of the founders of of UK Extinction Rebellion, that climate change is a moral and not a political issue. And I don't disagree with him. But but attached to this is there this idea that. Uh, it demands a universal universalist response, and climate has to be depoliticized. Um, you know, and there's an implication that if you listen to the science, you know, it's sort of like uh, looking for orders from a higher, a higher, not just moral authority, but but higher knowledge, right? That we shouldn't f blindly follow those who tell us what we must do. You know, and depoliticizing the issue, it seems to me, is exactly not what you're counseling, right, with civil disobedience. I mean, civil disobedience is very political, and ultimately that gets you engaged in political struggle. So Maybe yeah. nonpartisan is a, is a better you know, way of saying it? Uh, Molly Ivins, who probably very few of you remember, once said, the only, uh, the only, one in the, the only thing in the middle of the road is roadkill. Um, Looks uh, like that's where we all are pretty soon. Well, right? yeah, yeah. So, so you know, so I mean, that's all one of the principles that I that I live by. So, nonpartisanship, I think, is a way of, of kind of trying to say, well, you know, don't look behind the curtain. We we don't we're not we don't want to talk about that stuff. Okay, but the strat strategy, and I'm sorry if I'm lecturing, right? The the question really is, over the long term, you know, where where do you go with this, right? What is the long term strategy for not just getting governments to tell the truth, but changing those those mechanisms and systems of governance and government so that they do produce justice for everyone. Uh, again, you know, I'm, I'll stop after this. Uh, there's this quote, this famous, well, famous quote, which is attributed to both um, Slavoj Žižek and I think it's Frederick Jameson, which is that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th this is where... They might is, happen together. Well, surely, surely one will probably bring on the other. But the, the challenge, of course, is what does a world without it look like? You know, what is the strategy? And is there one? Get to <clears throat> well, I'm not certain about uh, capitalism and the end of the world, but what I can tell you is what we would like our government to do. Uh, in Extinction Rebellion. One thing that I think is strange is that we are considered in Extinction Rebellion uh, to be radicals, environmental <laughs> radicals. And I, I really think just the opposite is true, that the, the real radicals in the room right now are uh, the fossil fuel companies and the politicians who kowtow to them. Uh, <laughs> The, the end result of, of this kind of strategy is going to be the extinction of civilization, most likely. But uh, what I think XR would like governments to do are just common sense things like decarbonize the economy as quickly as possible uh, instead of... of um, in, instead of subsidizing uh, fossil fuel companies, how about subsidizing wind farms and subsidizing solar panels? Uh, we need to uh, update our electrical infrastructure so that solar cells and windmills 
will be able to manufacture electricity. Uh, we need to come up with all kinds of new ideas for drawing down carbon, planting millions of trees, uh, saving our coastal cities from flooding. There are just so many things that government could be doing and things that aren't that complicated, things that aren't that difficult. Manufacturing solar cells and uh, wind farms are, are, are not that difficult. We, we just need to change our way of, of thinking. You know, in Santa Cruz, we're talking a lot of, and to you, Mogli, after this, but, um, you know, we're talking a lot about rewilding as sort of looking at that as sort of our next step strategy. In fact, we have a meeting about it, mm -hmm. about talking about rewilding and then positive deep adaptation. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Rewilding is when you essentially go out and help plant trees and, and plants to to bring the earth back to the way it was before you know, it's, it's been gutted, essentially, you know, and there, there's a lot of, it's very popular in Britain, in the UK right now. They're, they're, it's a great community building exercise where people get together, they, they plant trees, they rewild forests, they, they add additional plants, that kind of thing. Um, positive deep adaptation, um, I like to think of it as a just in case, you know, teaching people how to deal with how they can get food if, you know, our systems do collapse, but ultimately these are all things that are community building. You yeah. know, these are things that can continue even if we become, even if we make all of these changes to our, to our systems, you know, we can still get a group of people to go out and hike and plant trees. And that is a community building. And there, there are also ideas about changing our society so that it, it becomes more community based. So that instead of spending all of your time commuting, uh, you spend a lot more of your time gardening for your food with your neighbors. That, you know, there are community gardens, that there are community parks, that these are how, this is how we will change society so that it not just is, is about making someone money, but it is about how human beings actually are, we are community-based people, you know. Human beings are, are animals that, that need other other people, and our current system is is not set up for that. And if we can change our society so that we have more human interaction and support each other more, I think that that's a the fantastic strategy for moving forward. You know, even if it works just a little bit, where we we support more community gardens, I think that that's a wonderful way forward. Did you want so. to add something? I do. And I could talk about this for a long time, but, but sure. I'll be brief. Um, what I want to say is that, you know, there are many, many environmentalist, you know, branches of the movement that have proposed alternative economic systems. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things, and and, and what Extension Rebellion is saying is not like... Um, like we have the solution and humanity has all the solutions we know what to do we know what to do in order not to destroy the planet it's called permaculture it's called gray water systems it's called you know composting toilets it calls it's called a you know a regenerative farming we know the solutions you know look at project drawdown it's all like written down already but um it's the things that are in the way you know that are that are keeping us from from getting there the point is you know the actual details um you know can vary but there's a lot of really smart people who spend a lot of time trying to create like 
ways to live in in harmony. And it's just, you know, extractive capitalism and the way money moves in a money economy um, that have kept that from really being acted upon. So we do have a bigger problem, which is how do we do real democracy? How do we how do we like learn to get along? Because we could be all here talking about like, oh, you know, we love our neighbors. And then there's people in the, you know, in our community who have guns who don't agree with us <laughs> and then, you know, we'll be in trouble. So um, but if, you know, if we can if we can really, you know, act locally and think globally, if we can really do that thing that sounds so simple and such a cliche, if we can really act in the interest of, of life and remove some of these, you know, oppressive, destructive obstacles, um, that would be amazing. <laughs> and, you know, indigenous peoples did it for thousands of years. We have some teachers <laughs> there, too. So it's really, you know, it's a matter of, of dismantling the oppressive system and also you know, listening to, to the, to the wisdom where it is. And I don't know if we'll succeed, but I do know we, we've had all the solutions for a long time. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much for being with me here in the studio tonight. Um, I, you can look up uh, Extinction Rebellion, you know, Monterey and Santa Cruz chapters. And, and I was going to ask if you're having any events or meetings anytime soon. Um, okay. Um, hmm. Oh, did you? So, did you want to say? Go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to tie into the next show. There are uh, there have been religious leaders recently. I'm not going to say who because it's not important. That have really emphasized, first of all, stewardship of the environment as one of the most important things, and the importance of listening and listening to one another. Right, listening to one another, and also I would encourage you listen to the voice of the world. Spend time by yourself. Spend time in nature. Really get in touch with what is happening around you, what's happening within you, and ask yourself how you want to get involved. Get in touch with us. Look us up. We have meetings. They're available online. They're public. Come down. We welcome everybody. Okay. Well, thank you. Two weeks from today, on Sunday, February 6th, my guest will be Professor Jenny Reardon, faculty member in the UCSC Sociology Department and director of the Center for Science and Justice Research. Uh, Professor Reardon has been engaged in a rather interesting project in, in the last couple of years, cycling through Kansas. Um, she's been studying the grasslands and cow towns of Kansas uh, in order to learn about embodied knowledge of the land and attitudes towards contemporary U.S. politics from the denizens of rural Kansas. Uh, I've heard about the pro the project, and it sounds real. It's really interesting. And for those of us here on the coast who can hardly imagine what it's like to live in the in the middle in the Midwest, uh, it's it's going to be really interesting. Um, if you've missed program broadcasts, you can find archived shows, including a couple of shows about solar energy and PG&E, at tinyurl.com/resd6jb. And please write to me at L at ksqd.org. So until next, every other Sunday, sustainability now.